Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. OSCON will be taking place May 8th through the 11th in Austin, Texas. The O'Reilly Open Source Convention combines the experience of the open source community with ideas and strategies for using open source tools and technologies and gives you exposure to the full stack and all possible configurations. Registration is now open and save 20% on most passes with code USRG. For more information and to register, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 50016. LambdaConf 2017 will be taking place May 25th through 27th in Boulder, Colorado, with training days available on the 22nd and 23rd and mini conferences on the 24th. For more information, visit lambdaconf.us. Elm Europe will be taking place June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zipuki and Richard Feldman will be speaking, and the rest of the speaker lineup is online. Early bird tickets are sold out, but standard tickets are still available. For more information and to register, visit elmeurope.org. Zurich Hack 2017 will be taking place in Zurich on the 9th through the 11th of June. Zurich Hack 2017 is a three-day Haskell hackathon hosted at the HSR Hochschule for Technique Rappersville, a fantastic venue located right at Lake Zurich and providing space for 300 participants. For more information and to register, visit zurihack.info. Also, Elm Day is a one-day conference about the Elm programming language and practical use of Elm in Norway and the Nordics. It will be held in Oslo, Norway, Saturday, June 10th. Visit osloelmday.no for more information and to register. Curion Barcelona will be taking place June 19th through 20th. A new and unusual non-profit conference focused on programming languages and emerging challenges in industry, Curion is a new conference focused on the intersection of emerging languages and emerging challenges in industry as well as new ideas and paradigms in software development. For more information and to keep an eye open for registration, visit www.curry-on.org 2017. O'Reilly Fluent Conference will be taking place June 19th through the 22nd in San Jose, California. Fluent spotlights the crucial technologies and frameworks of their web stack, JavaScript, HTML5, CSS, React, Angular, Containers, Docker, and other emerging tools that are transforming the way web developers work. Save 20% with the discount code USRG on most passes. Visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 61309 to register. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet closure developers and learn about what's happening in the language, in the community, and in companies using closure. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and to register. BusConf is a non-profit open space conference about functional programming taking place the 3rd to the 5th of August in Germany near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming related topics in any language. Ticket registration is open and you can find out more at www.bus-conf.org. The StrangeLoop CFP is open. StrangeLoop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, database, distributed technologies, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opens in early June, and the CFP is still open, but closes soon on May 8th, so make sure to submit your talk. Visit thestrangeloop.com to submit your talk and for more information. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain on October 26th and 27th. The call for papers is now open, so make sure to submit your talk or workshop. To submit your presentation and for more information, visit www.lambda.world. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. 
If that is how you would like to share your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor. And this week with us, we have Sonder Spees. Sonder, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yes, of course. Well, I'm Sander. I contribute to the recent project. So I do that as a contributor, of course. Besides that, I work currently as a developer for OCaml Labs, helping them out. Before that, I basically did a lot of front-end projects. So I basically worked a lot with JavaScript. So my background is a bit different from like normal functional programming. So yeah, I'm excited actually to talk about recent ML. And recent ML had been something interesting that I've seen for a little while now. and was looking around and came across you and as a contributor wanted to get into a little bit of what ReasonML is. I noticed you also were doing OCaml, as you mentioned, with your OCaml labs. So talk about how some of that of Reason and OCaml and different MLs might fit in. But before we get to that, what was your background? How did you get started in the software and what got you interested in doing software development as something that you're pursuing now? Well, my background goes kind of like way back for me. It was like I had way too much time in high school. I didn't pay actually a lot of attention to the things that I was doing at school. But, you know, I thought, you know, like creating a website. So this was the 90s, a lot of fun. And kind of the thing that you were doing there, you had markup, you had HTML. And besides that, you know, if you wanted to do programming uh, or make something advanced, you would do, you create a Java applet. So that was kind of the thing how I kind of got into software development at the time, you know, I was Totally a fan of Java. So that's kind of how I started with programming. I also, at the time, did the parts with certifications and all that stuff. I remember at, when I really started learning programming, I had this book that I got from the library. And I, I kept it for like two, three months. And I only kept reading it until I fully understand the keywords that they were using. So I was like 15 years at the time. If you have to see, this was a book where they say, like, are you going to learn Java in 21 days? And I was keeping it for like three or four months. But that's kind of like my first experience with doing real programming. From there, I went into that direction. Unfortunately, I stayed quite along, yeah, what I call like the wrong path of going more like the OLP way with Java and C Sharp, which have the marketing budget and kind of like are the noisiest one out there. And of course, also when you're looking for guidance. At the time, I didn't really find it the, the correct one. So it was kind of like the things that sent me kind of like into the wrong direction there. So that was kind of unfortunate. But, you know, I'm now I'm doing the fun stuff. So if you start out doing Java and C Sharp, and I was right in that boat with you where you came across and compared to Basic and Pascal and some of these other things you do, yeah, Java seems really awesome when you're coming from that direction. And then C Sharp, yeah evolved a lot quicker than Java. So you say, yeah, this is awesome compared to what I was doing before. But what was that jump that took you from doing the Java and C Sharp and going the object-oriented route to first being exposed to functional programming and eventually discovering OCaml? So what's interesting there is that maybe I can make another jump. So I have kind of like different jumps in my career. So it was kind of like first I did Java, then I did C Sharp. From there, I believe around 2000, 
then yeah, somewhere around that area, I believe 2010, I started doing more JavaScript-related work. But all my work has always been related to front-end work. So it's always been related to like the more front-end part of the website. And like initially, that was always the task of a backend developer. The backend developer always did kind of the task of doing the HTML rendering. It was kind of like something you also did. But in like more recent years, the role of front-end developer has kind of came out of that. So I also went into that direction further. What kind of like led me more into like the functional programming direction is, for me, it was kind of like, I want to write software that other developers can maintain. And one of the big issues that I noticed when I was developing applications was basically the issue of state. So other developers would come in. I had the idea that I wrote the best MPC application ever, but they basically would not understand it. And for me, this is kind of like a path towards self-improvement, actually. So yeah, I really think writing maintainable software is important. I personally care a little bit less about if it's functional or not. It happens to be, of course, a lot more functional most of the times. But for me personally, the most important thing really is, okay, the next guy comes in, can he understand the code that I wrote? Yeah, that's kind of like my main drive there. So when it came to how I basically got into OCaml, so from the JavaScript side, you know, I was, of course, improving. And there are certain directions there, especially with React, which basically have like a lot of functional influences also from the ML side. So I'm not sure if you know, but React kind of like the origins of React they like the initial versions of React has been written in standard ML. So there's definitely inspiration that came from there. And also, if you look at the other projects that Facebook is doing, they are pulling like a lot of inspiration from OCaml. So for me, at some point, it was like, why can't I do the same? So why can I also not get, you know, they have like this big source of inspiration, which is OCaml. So why can't I do the same there? And so you mentioned it was Facebook's push towards the ML style languages? Because I know they've hired a lot of Haskell people as well in OCaml and various things that have started to push that. And so you kind of saw this big company with this large code base saying, look, we need to loop type systems to some extent for at least certain parts of our programs. And this seems to be working for us. So maybe this is something I need to look at. Yeah, it's kind of like if you basically look at JavaScript itself, you can already see, like, for the last couple of years, it's kind of like a certain inspiration that comes from ML-based languages. Also, especially within the React community, there are things like basically build on top of the language. So you have kind of like React, which is being used for the rendering part, or just building components. But there are several things that have been built on top of trying to solve language issues, like immutability, static type system, I believe some other parts. But those are actually the two important ones. So it's kind of faking to be another language, but it's not. Yeah, so Facebook starts pushing a lot of this stuff. And there's the functional hints in JavaScript. So what was that process of looking like OCaml? Did you just find a couple OCaml books? Or if you're starting to push down this OCaml route, what was the route that you started going down to actually start looking into OCaml deeper now that you realize there's something there, let me look into this? Yeah, so I knew it was there for quite a while, but I needed a good excuse to start working on it. So for me, that was, I was working at this company, which was doing like video on demand stuff. And basically what they were doing was they had like these setup boxes, but what they wrote on it was like, these devices are worse than a Raspberry Pi. And they were running like full web browsers on them, just full WebKit, and then expecting everything to go fluid and just run. And it was complete madness. So at the time, I had something like, I want to have a better experience there. So kind of what you could do there is you could go the native way with writing C code and all that kind of stuff. And to be honest, 
I basically, I don't have C knowledge and it wasn't really on my radar at also at the time. And Ocamo really was. So I started playing with that. To be honest, nothing really came out of it, but it was kind of like a good excuse to start hacking on it. So just getting started in it, it wasn't that hard. It was quite easy, actually. It was kind of like when you're coming from like the JavaScript world, when you're kind of like faking all these defaults, and then you're basically coming into another language where you have all the defaults that you actually want to have, where immutability is default and not mutability, and also things that are really delightful, like better matching. For me, it was how could I ever not have known about this? But yeah, that was kind of like really... Really nice. The experience just getting started there. Yeah, it was really great. And actually, ever since I have not really been looking back, I still kind of feel like being a newcomer in that area. But yeah, mostly actually what I've been doing is like a lot of work with the ASD. So that's kind of like the thing where most of my optimal work is related to. And you mentioned these things on Raspberry Pis. And it seems that some of these older languages especially the functional ones that have been around are almost perfect for those little mini computers and microcomputers yeah. where these were the things that were developed and were running on computers back in the 1980s, early 1990s. And we've got essentially equivalent hardware. So OCaml and Haskell and Erlang and the Lisps were all built and running on hardware originally that was subpar of these things. And it's like, yeah, now we take them port these. And this seems like a perfect device where you can say, yes, of course it can run on this. It was designed back in the 80s when hardware was 10 times as slow as this. And this is plenty more overhead than is needed for these things. Yeah, so I don't think the language is not the problem. It's more like getting people towards the language. I believe that's the big issue there. Because if you look at like a lot of other languages, they have certain challenges for regarding maintainability. But yeah, there are a lot of people on those languages and they can just build whatever and often a lot easier to get started there. So that's kind of like the challenge there. So it's easier to get something off the shelf there. And then you mentioned getting the defaults out of the box, pattern matching, which you hadn't encountered, immutability, some of these higher order functions that you didn't necessarily, if you're in, depending on when you were doing C Sharp or definitely doing Java, you're like, okay, now I got to build the whole object just around to mimic a higher order function. What were some of those things that started setting the way, either feeling the pain of having these problems of mutability or realizing, oh, value objects are a thing, or some of the things that you started to solidify before you jumped into OCaml that kind of helped made that snap and that click when you said OCaml? Because if getting into OCaml wasn't really that tricky, because that <laughs> foundation was set, what was some of that foundation that put you ready to be it was really kind of the direction with react so before react you know i was mentioning this mpc part and at the time everybody within the front-end world was convinced that mpc was the pattern that you should use to write front-end applications so at the same time what we were doing was building these applications with mpc and at the same time we discovered that it didn't help as much as we wanted our front-end applications were not as maintainable as we hoped and for me, like Bottle mentioned before, I want to write something that's maintainable. And the direction that I went into, if you're looking at someone's code base, like what's easy to understand, it's kind of okay, you have one starting point. And from there, you can go into the other parts of the application. You should not have these. I'm not sure if it's the concept of state really was that well formed within my mind. But really, this part where you don't have too much mutability. I think it's kind of like from that time, you know, with MPC, it's like a lot of mutability. And from there, kind of understood that you don't want to have that. 
And at that point, also React basically came out, which was kind of like the big thing there. So this was, for me, React came on my radar like the end of 2013. It had a certain direction towards immutability. Of course, David Nolan from uh, Closure Script also gave a very important talk around that time regarding immutability and JavaScript. So he basically, with Ohm at the time, showed that he was basically running circles around all the other existing solutions, which kind of caused, of course, this whole front-end movement towards more immutability. But yeah, the solutions there, they are not that elegant, unfortunately. It's this mutable language, and you try to mimic immutability, but it's not. So that's the challenge there. So that was, for me, a direction to look further. And uh, yeah, luckily, Okama was there. So you're already feeling the pain, and you're already starting to see the hints of a solution out there, but it didn't feel complete. And then you get into OCaml and you're like, okay, now this feels proper because this is actually a language designed with this in mind versus added on later and have to figure out, okay, which part of my app uses immutable JS and which part doesn't kind of thing. It's all there and given to me and I don't have to take it piecemeal and it doesn't feel bolted on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's really, you want to have to like the right defaults. So ideally, if you can remove categories of problems, you should. That's, I believe, probably the most important thing if you do maintenance. You know, if you can remove categories of problems, you know, do that. Remove them. So there are several things for the JavaScript side that you could use to build on top, but it's totally different from the experience that you have in OCaml. So, for instance, within JavaScript, you have this immutable stuff that you can use, and it kind of works, but it's... So first, there's the problem that you have there that everybody on your team also needs to have the same jump and also needs to do the same things there. And if you have a discussion point, that's, I believe, always a problem. So if you need to convince people about, okay, should we use this library? There's always a chance that several or at least one developer wants to have a discussion about that or about why or not that might be good. And that can be kind of annoying, I personally think. And so you get into OCaml, you start playing around, you start doing a little bit more. How long were you playing with OCaml before Reason got on your radar? And what put Reason on your radar? So the first thing that I did was what I mentioned. So I was kind of hacking on this personal project of mine within OCaml. So there are several things involved there. So I was using PPX there, this extension mechanism there, so that you can kind of like write a module within OCaml that is available within JavaScript. That was kind of like the thing that I was playing with. So I was kind of like doing a lot of stuff already with the AST there because that's kind of the thing that you're interacting with if you do like the OCaml PPX stuff. So that's the meta language extension part there. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Apologies there. Around the same time, actually, I was kind of talking a lot with Jordan Walk at the time already regarding OCaml. I was kind of like discussing my ideas that, that I was having. And he was kind of like already mentioning that he was kind of working on something syntax related. He wasn't that really going into details. So it was... I kind of had the feeling at the time that, okay, he might propose like a syntax change or camel or something, but I knew something was coming, but I wasn't aware at the time that it was Reason. So when Reason was announced, it hit for me like the, the perfect spot there. Kind of have this, they are targeting JavaScript developers syntax-wise while building upon the great OCaml language. So for me, that really felt like a perfect fit there. And for anybody who's unfamiliar with Reason at this point, and may have heard of it in passing and understand at just a high level that it's a ML that runs in JavaScript. Might know or might not know that it kind of came out of Facebook stuff. What is the elevator pitch if you're going to tell someone about 
how that fits in in the ecosystem. What is Reason ML? Is that a JavaScript with types move forward? Is it an OCaml implementation on JavaScript? Is it somewhere in between? Where does Reason fit in the whole JavaScript side compared to things like an Elm or a PureScript or a TypeScript or a Flow? How would you describe Reason? So if you look at the JavaScript side, you know, you see that JavaScript is slowly adopting parts of ML. And also the React community is also adopting parts of that. So that's one direction that you can go. One direction is you can slowly turn a language into ML, or you can go the other way around, or you can say, okay, we have OCaml here, and we can make it more familiar to JavaScript developers and have the right defaults from the start already. All the selling points from OCaml, you know, the immutability by default, the pattern matching parts, the data types. Of course, the challenge here about selling it, it's that you need to use it to understand, like, really what's the power here. It's, I'm probably not selling it right here, but if I need to sell it properly, it's targeted at React developers also. So if you have a React projects, if you're doing that, the problems that you have with React projects or doing React JS projects or React Native projects, it's not React itself. It's the language that you're using. So that's at least my experience. And I really believe that moving towards reason will really help with writing better applications because these defaults that I'm mentioning, immutability is there, pattern matching is there. And so as we go through, so this is more, we're taking the best parts of ML. We're giving those defaults out of the box. But the goal is we don't just want you to be writing OCaml or standard ML or whatever it is, whatever flavor of ML it is straight in the browser, and now you have to learn something completely new. We want to be able to give you the benefits of having something around an ML, but making it so it's not as scary to jump into if you're coming from the JavaScript side then. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So there are multiple things involved there. Of course, syntax is probably a very obvious one. It's also the one that I've been most involved with. You can blame me for adding JSX to Akemo. So the other part that's really important there is the build tooling. So you have, as a JavaScript developer, you have this NPM ecosystem, and that's what you're familiar to. And then you need to jump into a different language. And this different language has this completely new ecosystem. And you need to basically throw everything that you know away, and you need to start over. And that's not as friendly as it should be, I believe. So I believe really that the friction level there needs to be at a total minimum. So I believe some languages are doing this correct. But yeah, just in general, that's the main point there. And so if someone comes in and the way it sounds is you're targeting with reason, we want this to be something accessible to JavaScript developers. We want to be able to give them all the powers versus this is just a bunch of people who have done OCaml or done whatever language in the past that have to do JavaScript because there's no better tool available. So we want to create an ML and just have an ML that essentially cross compiles to JavaScript. This is we want something that we can take the best and give a default out of the box. So what does that getting started story look like for someone who's coming from JavaScript, might be seeing this thing, might be liking Immutable JS, might be liking some of this flow stuff. What is that migration story for someone who's in the JavaScript coming in and saying, okay, I've got this. This is more approachable than saying, okay, now I got to go just use OCaml or standard ML, whichever ML kind of flavor it is that says, now I got to learn that whole tool chain, but just pass the compiler flag that says, no, I want to output to JS versus machine code. What's the getting started sorted for someone coming from JavaScript? Well, I believe there are several projects right now. I'm not following them closely, but uh, Chenglu created two projects, I believe. So there's the recent native, and I believe there's the recent web or something, or recent React one. 
So there are several example projects which I would recommend to start there first, because that's probably the one with the least friction there. Yeah, and from there, it's the story that we have, it's not complete yet. So there's still some work that we need to do regarding onboarding, but the starting point there really are the example projects. That's kind of where I personally would recommend people to start. Read the documentation, just try it out and just see where you get stuck. And we also have the Discord channel where I really recommend people to ask questions. It's really quite helpful, I believe. People are really trying to help each other. But yeah, there are parts where we basically need to improve regarding onboarding. It's really like the documentation part. There are a lot of stuff has been done already there, but it's probably could be improved a bit more. But yeah, so if you're coming from the NPM ecosystem, it's you can still use the NPM ecosystem there. If you're really interested into just the JavaScript part, you can also just install the Pocket Script compiler, and then you're probably also completely free to go with Reason. So that's also a really fast path if you're only interested into the, the JavaScript output. And so from being around and being as a recent contributor, have you noticed the influx of people are coming from people who are doing JavaScript but looking for something a little nicer, a little better versus the OCaml side? Yeah, so I think probably most people, actually it's, of course, you know, the JavaScript community is, of course, you know, several magnitudes larger than our OCaml community. So, of course, there's a lot more chance that people are coming from that direction. But actually, also people from the OCaml side are also going into that direction because, yeah, you know, building bridges, it's important for like both sides, I believe. So that's the opportunity to make, you know, basically, if we succeed with this and make it popular with a larger community, you know, then it's also OCaml wins. So. And that's what I was wondering is because you're pretty much limited to JavaScript. You've got things which will interpret or cross-compile down into JavaScript, but when it all comes down to it, if you want something on the front end, you're in JavaScript at this point. And so you get people who are doing JavaScript because they have to, and I didn't know how much of that was the balance of people looking for a better way to do front-end development. And then people who are like, well, I like OCaml, I've got this history, but I have to do JavaScript up until recent came out. And now I've got something that gives me what I need without actually having to write the JavaScript. Actually, what a fun thing is there is that you were mentioning people are writing JavaScript, but most of the time people are writing JavaScript and then compiling it to other JavaScript. So this whole point of compiling towards JavaScript, the JavaScript communities, they are already doing it. So the question there is, if you're already compiling towards JavaScript, why would you still be using JavaScript? Especially when there are better options out there. Of course, you know, this is like an opinion. So some people might think JavaScript is a brand language. And then you've got Reason. And you mentioned it fits really well with React. What are some of the other sweet spots of Reason and where it pairs well with? And if you're going to start a project from scratch, some of those things you might recommend. And then I want to get into the migration over to Reason if you've got an existing code base. But let's start with the simple thing first. If we're going to create some new web pages, we're going to create some new projects. Is there any easy sales that say, I can spin up this project, do something in Reason, and actually have something that shows off the power of Reason if I want to make that sale to my team? If I want to make that discussion and actually have something tangible to point at and say, look, we can have the discussion, but here's something we can actually discuss versus a bunch of theory. Is there anything that are those sweet spots for knocking something out with Reason that you would suggest starting with? Yeah, it's basically, for now, it's really the recent React project. So those are the bindings to React.js. They're being used by the Messenger team at Facebook. So that's kind of like the, the first part. If you're coming from the front-end world and you want to sell it to your team, that's like the first direction where I would look. 
And I think I heard you say it also works with the React Native. So if you're doing React Native, does that work as well? Or to be quickly honest, things are still moving in that direction. So the story there is not as great probably as it should be. I believe it's possible. I personally have not looked into it yet. And from what I heard, people will still want to improve that workflow there. So if you're trying it out, be aware of there might be a slightly bumpy road. So you might need to go into Discord on our Discord channel a few more times. Okay. And then what's the story of if we sell this, but you can sell an idea, but you can't necessarily sell a rewrite. What does it look like if you're trying to integrate? Is there a story there yet? Or is that something that's being worked on that says, we can take these pieces and these modules are now done in Reason and we can use them from JavaScript? And how do you do a migrate kind of thing? Yeah, so that's actually a really good question. Like what I mentioned, so, so Reason React is a really great project to look at. So what's nice also there is that the whole, what's been done there is what you were mentioning, doing it besides JavaScript. That's kind of the goal there. It's not to have cool rewrites. That's not going to work. That's not how most organizations work. So you need to introduce stuff gradually. So that's also kind of the goal there, that you can gradually introduce React components that have been written within React inside your existing code base. We're really building on top of Buckle script here. I'm not sure if that really needs an introduction, but yeah, Buckle script is one of the ways that we can compile reason towards JavaScript. So we're really building on top of that. So it sounds like the getting started story, at least if you have React in your application, is go build a React component. But this React component is built with JavaScript, and this one might be built with Reason. And it's just a React component, so it doesn't really matter when you consume these components or use these components what they're written. You could just say... I'm going to write this component and I'm going to pick reason because this is a new component. So I can get away with starting to introduce these stronger types immutability here, right? Yeah. So there's a quite a nice upgrade path there. But also if you are just interested in writing your server application, I also believe like reason is also a good option there. So I think, you know, the React is like one spot. It's kind of like the spot that we're mostly focusing on right now. But there are like several other projects out there. In, uh, you know, OCaml is... It has a lot of potential to go places. So, you know, you, as you probably know, you can build a kernel from it. So if we build this React component or we build this other module that's in Reason, can you give a high-level overview of what that FFI story might be? React probably doesn't deal as much with the interaction to regular JavaScript or calling out to regular JavaScript as much if you can isolate your component really well in React. But if you have this module that needs to pull in something that's written in JavaScript, which might be mutable, what was that kind of interrupt story between the part that's written in Reason ML and the part that you have to do with JavaScript that's not necessarily taken the defaults that you get with Reason? Yeah, so this is where Buckle Script comes into play. I'm not that familiar, to be honest, with the FFI story there, but it's basically Buckle Script. Buckle Script is the FFI story there. There are several annotations or attributes that you can use to indicate what you're getting from JavaScript. What's interesting, though, is that besides that, uh, Reason has several parts where the syntax is specific for Buckle Script. So we have several extensions to the language to make it more friendly in that regard. But yeah, when it comes to the, the foreign function invocation, it's really Buckle Script. Okay. And that's always one of those things when you're starting to migrate over. If you've got the uh, any way someone decides to write this JavaScript, and then you're trying to introduce some sanity around defaults and constraints, whatever language you pick, and you're like, oh, well, this thing doesn't support undefined or nulls in our language now. 
but we could get this thing coming in. It's always that. How do I guard against that outside do anything world where there are no constraints to the constraint world of picking reason now? And how do you put up those guards and make sure that? So to be completely honest, you know, you're reaching two worlds here. So this semi unpredictable behavior that you have within JavaScript, yeah, you cannot completely remove that. That's an illusion. That's not going to happen. So yeah, if you basically say from like, this is a certain type, has a certain type. The FFI will believe you, but if that's not true, you know, then it will break anyway. So there's this part where things can break if you do it wrong. And then you mentioned server side. So I'm guessing that if you're one of those people who are in love with the Node style apps and you've got this place where you're doing Node, that ReasonML gives a pretty good story there as well. That says, look, I can just write this small little service. That just runs, and I've now got reason, which gives me immutability and type constraints and pattern matching, and I could potentially shrink a bunch of this code because I've got the patterns built in instead of pulling this in that says, I'm going to go run this on my server, or I'm going to go run this on AWS Lambda or whatever. The reason ML gives a good story for doing some of those kinds of applications as well then. Definitely. So we've still got some time left, but I want to make sure we at least give you some time to bring up anything else that we haven't talked about. Is there anything on your mind or things that we've covered, but we should elaborate on a little bit more? If not, there's plenty more we can talk about, but I wanted to make sure at least take a pause to give you a chance. Yeah, so community was one that I mentioned before. So if we're going back, and we kind of touched on the communities, and you got people coming from... The OCaml community, you got people coming from the JavaScript community, you got people coming from the JavaScript, but introducing immutability and types community. What does some of that balance look like for the way that Reason might be looking for in the future? And what are some of those different constraints that each of these communities are kind of going back and forth on, if I'm asking that question well? So it's really about bringing multiple worlds together here. That's always a challenge. We have people who are coming from the JavaScript side who are really into how they are working and they are happy with that, how that works. Then we've got other people in a completely different ecosystem. It's like almost like a different universe, which are the Alcamo people. And you need to bring those people together. And to be honest, so far, actually, I've been pretty happy with actually how that's been going. The people from like the Alcamo community have been really welcoming quite helpful, actually, in with helping out with Reason. Same side from JavaScript, but more like different, having like a lot of interest into learning more from this completely new language, completely new ecosystem. So there's definitely from two sides, people are really trying to start to build this community. And I really think that's important. Really, really great thing also. And then there are some people who are like mentioning, for instance, the, the ivory tower for functional programming or People who are mentioning that people from JavaScript don't want to learn, probably those people are still there. But just in general, I think it's really, really great that there are lots of people that are really interested into learning or helping out other people. It's it's great to be part of. So when you're building that bridge, if you're crossing this chasm, what are some of those things that you kind of mentioned, the people who come from one side that say, oh, well, you're just ivory tower, functional programming. This is great in theory, but it doesn't apply to the real world. Or you have the people that argue back and forth that say, oh, well, you're just happy and you don't want to learn anything besides what you know. And you just want to consider yourself a, quote, 
expert in whatever this sub niche is, which might be fine. But yeah, if you've got this, and again, those are minorities, but sometimes those minorities get loud. Yeah. But what are some of those other kind of chasms that you're having to work and build bridges across? And more about the realistic stumbling blocks of if you're getting someone introduced to immutability or pattern matching, whatever that is, what are some of those things that you found that are those stumbling blocks to help bridge the community? But once people get them, they're really willing and excited to be part of that bridge building. I think mostly in my experience, the language is not really the problem. It's the challenge is like old habits that you have and removing those parts. That's kind of like the challenge. So I don't really think language is really the problem there. It's more build tooling, I believe. That's the major issue. Of course, when it comes to language and syntax, there are several parts where, at least from my personal experience, things felt a little bit off regarding what's expected in all my previous program language, Java, C-sharp, JavaScript. They use semicolons, they use curly braces. So that felt a bit off there. So I really think that reason is, is really helpful if you're coming from that direction, especially except for other parts. The syntax is helping. The build tooling is helping. And you mentioned the documentation earlier where some of that could be included. And what I'm wondering is for some of these people who may be more familiar with these concepts, unfamiliar with reason specifically, but get in, check out reason, think it's interesting. What are some of those things that if you're giving documentation and marketing about these ideas, doing a paradigm shift of the way you think, right? As you mentioned, I've got to change the way I think about these problems. I got to change the way I think about just assigning something wherever or understanding pattern matching. What are some of those things that you think are benefits that people could document and help sell the ideas across to help build that community? Yeah. So I really think what's important is just to build stuff and just document what you're building. Just if you're building a web service with Reason, just explain how you're doing it. If you're building a web application with Reason React, write about it. I don't really think you can really go wrong there. So there are also the other parts which you're mentioning from discussing the other parts like community, pattern matching, and that kind of stuff. I believe that in that sense, every developer is in their own journey in finding out all these things. I happen to have mine and others have their own journeys towards learning more. So I really think like that probably there could not be enough places where you can put this information and just write about it. Probably about every subject within JavaScript, there are probably like 100 tutorials. If you you don't want them, you can find walls of Google search results from one subject. And we need a bit more of that on the OCaml and Reason side and probably also other functional programming language, I believe. We could use basically a lot more content there. That doesn't really need always to be the best quality out there. And I don't believe that's too important. Just more perspectives, because you never know whose perspective is going to align with the person that's needing it at that time. So they may hear it a hundred times and it finally clicks the hundred and first because it's phrased the right way kind of thing. Yeah, well, if I look at my own direction there, it was functional programming or the influences from that direction have never been really allowed you know it was if i look back the things what's being taught in at universities you know it's java it's still those kind of languages that are being taught right now and it's disappointing but it's reality so i really think that you know if it comes to functional programming or programming languages that go into that direction all the noise is good there and then as we get close i want to make sure we kind of cover a little bit of what reason is looking like going forward. 
So it's still relatively early, but what are some of the things that you're looking at in the near term or long term, bringing to reason and building the community and maybe some of that stuff that if someone gets interested in this, here's this, never knew about it, but decides to check it out and gets excited. Maybe what are some of those other things aside from just putting material out there and showing examples that they could actually help with? So what is some of the stuff and the roadmap of where reason might be looking for in the future? So what's interesting there is we have basically wrote the bindings towards React. But of course, the big question there is, this is also if you're really interested into bridging these two worlds and really want to have like a fun challenge there, I really recommend trying to help out with this one. Is the question is, what would happen if you basically write React within Reason itself? So not the bindings, but completely write version of React within Reason. We are brainstorming about that. We're kind of like playing with that idea. One very important part there is that we are really interested in this because we really believe that there's a lot of potential there. The challenge there really is making it easy to use for people without making it too heavy. If you're really looking for a fun challenge, also the direction where one of the upcoming things where we want to go, I would really check that out. We have a special dedicated room for that within the recent Discord. So we'd really recommend checking that out. There are like already a lot of a lot of ideas that are being discussed there. So yeah, that's my, if you want to have like a glimpse of where reason is going, uh, like this is one of the things that I think is really interesting. So a lot more, instead of just using it as components or using it as little web services, doing a lot of the frameworks and actually building the frameworks in reason to be able to get those running on reason for more reliability, more understandability, instead of just being written in JavaScript and using Reason as another portion of your code then. Yeah, 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 basically. And also, um, there's the performance part. I believe it should be possible to have like a lot faster code. So what's probably most interesting is for staying on the native side. So basically, we would write React with Reason. We would stay on the native side, especially if you're looking in the direction of the React native side. It really has a lot of potential there. It sounds interesting, especially since Pushing that forward, it means, as you mentioned, there's Buckle, there's pushing it towards the native side, which means you actually get Android and Coco, I guess, the Objective-C slash Swift interop, the LLVM stuff that's there. That means you can now write your reason and have another language that you can start to target multiple applications once that pushes forward a little bit more. And you're not just limited to writing it in React, you're actually writing your other business logic and other domain logic now with multiple choices across multiple platforms. So that sounds like an interesting... It's it's really exciting, actually. And I really hope more people are going to see this and want to try to help out with this. There's a lot of potential there. Yeah, it sounds like the more languages and the more baselines you have to choose from to write your mobile apps from that can target multiple things, the more we push it forward and have ideas that can spread back and forth across languages even better whatever language you decide is your flavor that you prefer. Yeah, as long as it's uh, related to OCaml. Well, I'm sure pushing everybody pushing that pushes the whole thing forward. And okay, if someone pushes it out for, be it Haskell or Clojure or whatever it is, and you're like, well, OCaml needs that too. How can we make the OCaml version better to be able to get that? And then having the bragging rights on the flip side that says, yeah, you write this in OCaml and look what we get that you don't get. So pushing the whole thing forward when you have that healthy competition there and you're not just locked into writing it in Java on Android or writing it in Objective-C or Switch. Yeah, yeah. 
So is there any other projects you're involved with? You mentioned OCaml Labs. We talked a lot about Reason. We talked to some of the React and how that fits in. Is there anything you're involved with that you want people to know about? Any presentations or appearances you got coming up? No, not really. That's fine. This is your chance to just reach out to the audience and make sure that they know about anything. So if there's nothing that you have, then I wanted to make sure you had that opportunity. There's something I'm working on, but I cannot tell that yet. So it's uh, something for, for later. So it's, uh, people need to be patient. Sorry. Well, hit me up and I can help you announce that and spread that out to the followers when it's time for them to announce that. Just let me know and we'll make sure okay. to help publicize that as well. So where can people find you online? What are the best places for people to follow along with you? And we'll get the React page and everything in the show notes. But do you blog, Twitter, GitHub? What's the best place for people to keep up with you? Twitter. Twitter. That's kind of the, the thing that I use and where I spread too much noise. That's what I personally would recommend. I don't have a blog. People are safe from this. And I'll get your Twitter account in the show notes so people can come back, look in the show notes, and find you if they're driving around, doing yard work running down the trails or whatever they wind up doing as they listen to this? Actually, if they are trying out Reason, you can always ask me questions. You can also go towards the Discord channel where people are really helpful and really want to help you out. So far. Okay, I'll make sure to get those in the show notes too. Great. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Sonder, for taking your time to join me today. It's a pleasure talking to you. And I know it's a little late there, but thanks for taking your evening for me and giving me an overview and better picture of where Reason ML fits into this whole ecosystem and some of the things we might should be looking forward to going forward with Reason. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. And it was a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.